so I was going to talk uh, this morning, uh, exhort you to consider holiness and walking in holiness and living a holy life and searching out the scriptures as they, regate, as they relate to holiness. And, and in the process of preparing for that, a whole other sermon happened. I was reading and studying. I was in... Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and I, I have a number of commentaries, and, and I, I, I like to read them because I'm always wanting to be very careful that I always rightly divide God's word. Matter of fact, there's a part that I was going to preach in the holiness message, which will, it'll be next Sunday unless the Lord has something else for us to do. And I was reading one of my commentaries, and the commentator was describing a time in his life when he was at seminary or you know Bible college or something, and he was talking about his teacher. Um, I'm going to read it to you, but that's the context of this. He says, In my first class in Christian ethics, the professor, Dr. T.B. Maston, introduced me to his philosophy of leadership. Because he dealt constantly with the field of applied Christianity, his teachings and writings often created strong reaction from the students and tensions within the Christian community. The tension was created because many of us had made commitments to Christ without ever exploring what the implications of that commitment were in every area of our lives. The comments that he was making, you know, these comments were associated with 2 Corinthians 7.1, and that reads, Therefore, Having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the spirit of God, in the fear of God, by the spirit of God, emphasis my own. (laughs) I mentioned last week a conversation Davo and I had, and we were talking about exhortation, and when I thought about it, it's like that is this whole job, at least this you know this Sunday morning part of it is exhortation and and that's what sermons are quite often is an exhortation to walk out the Word of God as we have it in our scriptures those that guy's words to me are very interesting and there's there's two things in there that I want to touch on today. The first is this concept like it's a it's a course what did he call it? The field of applied Christianity. Now, to me, that seems silly. I mean, what would unapplied Christianity look like? The world, I think, right? I mean, all of Christianity is to be applied. It's, it's, to, it's an application. Again, his context was 2 Corinthians 7.1, where he spoke to being perfected in holiness and, and cleansing ourselves from all defilement uh, in the fear of God, that we would actually apply Christianity. I'm not going to go real deep into that of the two things that I wanted to speak on, but to me, just the fact that we would have to have a study of applied Christianity, and I guess, you know, theologians have to study stuff, so I'm sure it was a good study, but that ought to be the most basic concept for all of us is that we would apply Christianity, that we wouldn't hear the word of God, right? Doesn't it say that, that you not be hearers of the word, but effectual doers of the word, applying your Christianity? That's half the equation. The other half of the equation of applied Christianity is first being perfecting holiness, kind of the 
the what am I becoming, and then the second is kind of the what am I doing of applied Christianity. Ephesians 2.10 says that we, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And then James 4.17 says, therefore to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. So as much as on one side of the coin of applied Christianity would be applying the teachings of Christ to ourselves in, in, in regards to holiness and separating ourselves from the world and, and being sanctified and set apart unto God, the other side of the coin is actually doing those things that would be applied Christianity, like coming to Nancy's house and helping her to, to come over and, and help Rebel and Finley to just apply those things to actual works that have been prepared for us before the beginning of time. And that's what I love about this little movement that Ben and Kim and their group applied kingdom. That's applied, well, it's not, it's tangible kingdom, but it's applied Christianity. So I'm very excited that you're actively looking for opportunities. But as awesome as that is, we should always be aware for opportunities to apply Christ every single minute of every single day. That's literally why the church that you go to here is called Church on the Street. It's not because we've been given this really quaint and beautiful little chapel that that people would say, wow, that's a really awesome church on the street. It's that we would be the church on the street, that that when you come in, and, and I know I need to change the sign because it's old and faded, but when you come in, the sign says, welcome to church on the street. And when you go out, the sign says, welcome to church on the street. It's to come in, it's to be exhorted, it's to minister to one another, it's to praise and worship God in a corporate sense, and then to go out and release everything that he's given us into this world that needs him. So the first of the two things is is applied Christianity, and then the second, and the one I'm going to go deeper into today, is this comment that the commentator, right now this guy is a theologian and he studies the scriptures and then he helps guys like me to understand and I can, I can glean a little from him and glean a little from this guy and Holy Spirit will enlighten me to all of it. But he made this comment that says, many, a, many of us had made commitments to Christ without ever exploring what the implications of that commitment were in every area of our lives. We have a Ladies Bible study, we're maybe three or four weeks into it that that's, uh, we're doing on Thursday mornings and we're studying Romans and we've gotten through three chapters of Romans and we're about to start chapter four and Paul is speaking of this righteousness apart from the law that's found in faith in Christ Jesus. And then he's going to talk more and more about faith as we go through Romans and we decided that rather than just plug along into chapter 4, we'd go into chapter 10, and we would understand what this saving faith, because faith is a pretty big word in the New Testament of the Bible, but saving faith, what that is. So we went to chapter 10, and we looked at, at, at uh, the, the words and the teachings of John the Baptist and of Jesus, repent for the forgiveness of your sins, and, and all these different things to, to get the true picture of what saving faith looks like. Now, that's not today's sermon, but the point is that many of the ladies were like, wow, there's a, there's a depth of understanding that if we don't really press into the scriptures, we might not get. And, and that's a very fundamental area of Christianity is to really and truly understand what your salvation looks like. How is it actually acquired? And here we have this guy making this comment that he's literally 
in seminary, and everybody assumes themselves to be Christians, but they have no concept as this teacher, this professor is explaining to them applied Christianity like it's a class. They're like, I signed up for that? Wait a minute, but I signed up for that too? You did, and you did, and I did. But so many of us, if we don't press into the scriptures, if God bless well-meaning evangelism and everything, but if people are led to the Lord without an understanding of what it means when you actually come to the Lord, then either they're not going to be productive in their walk, they're not going to find the peace and the glory that's in Christ Jesus for themselves, or maybe they're actually not in a walk. And that's a really scary thing. So here he is saying that we were, there was tension like within the class and within the Christian community in general because this guy was calling us to apply our Christianity. And we had no idea that it had to be. Okay, so... One of the strongest courses of scripture in the New Testament, it's actually the red letter words of Jesus, is in Luke chapter 14 that speaks to the call on the Christian. Now, Jesus uses the word disciple here, but I think you can synonymously put believer, Christian, born again, disciple into this set of requirements. Jesus speaking, now large crowds were going along with him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother, I'm just thinking my wife said, don't read that in front of our kids (laughs) and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. When you came to Jesus, did you have any sense of Luke 14 right here? I'm guessing that you didn't. I didn't either. I think I still found my way to Jesus, as, as you did too. But we need to understand the call on our lives by the Lord is this call. Thank you. I was just going to ask for it and you gave it to me. You the man. So then Jesus, the, the key words were calculate the cost. Jesus says calculate the cost. Don't start down this thing, not understanding the path that you're on until you, well, that's silly. Calculate the cost. Don't start and then try to decide whether you can do it. Understand now there is no there is no option other than to pay the cost, right? The option would be, you know what, that's an awful lot, Jesus. I think I'll just live fast, die young, leave a good looking corpse, and spend my eternity in hell. Which no one, no one ever felt good about when they actually started the end of that process. There is nobody. When you hear somebody say, you know, I understand, I even believe, but I don't want to. I'll just deal with hell when it comes. When it comes, they wish they hadn't had that attitude. Nobody says, you know what? It was worth it. 
It was worth it. It's not worth it. Okay, so Jesus is challenging people to count the cost. Let me just give you some, from, from that scripture, some, some thoughts about the different things that he touches on. Jesus would ask, where is your devotion? What will you do when presented with a choice between your father, now Jesus speaking, and me? Your children and me. We had that conversation a little bit about the families in the, in the Middle East that, that are the Christian families that ISIS is capturing and the horrible kind of things that are happening to them. And I remember somebody saying, man, I hope I never get that test because I don't know what I would do. But the, the beauty to what I would do is what they're doing. And they're standing for the Lord. And they're doing it because they're like Stephan. And, and they're looking up and they're seeing the glory of God in that moment. And they understand because there's a grace associated with such a challenge. But we need to count the cost because the cost is not to hate your parents, right? If you are devoted to Jesus in the way he's demanding us to be devoted to him, the fruit of that devotion would be to love our parents and to love our children in a way even greater than what we do today. So it's not that he wants us to hate anybody, but he wants to use as an example those things, in this case, those people that are most dear to us, and that our devotion to him would make our devotion to them look like hate. Okay? All right, how about the next one? Are you ready to pick up your cross daily? To crucify your flesh Daily, every morning, get up and put that flesh up on the cross where it belongs to die to yourself daily. That's what it means to pick up your cross and carry it in another gospel. He uses the word daily. So I've inserted it here, but but it's for emphasis. He used it in another one of the gospels daily, daily, daily. My pleasures, my desires, my wants, as they contrast with his desire for my life in this moment, which might not be what I want to do. Am I willing to put down my life? to put it on the cross every single day. Jesus says count the cost because that is the cost. How about our stuff? Is, is it ours or is it his? Because he finished that course saying, you can't be my disciple unless you give up everything that you own. Now, he hasn't taken everything that I own, but he's expecting me to understand that it's not mine, it's his. And if he wants it, he can have it, Right? How about the guest room in your house? Do you have an extra bedroom in your house? What if um, he ran Katie across your path and he said, bring Katie in there? By the way, she's a heroin addict. And if she goes through withdrawal, it's going to look like this. Is it your guest room or is it his guest room? How about the money you set aside to take that ski trip with your family to Colorado? What if... Natalie needed a surgery that wasn't covered or there was an adoption and God said, hey, listen, you're part of the financial solution to this adoption. Is it yours or is it his? Before you say yes to Jesus, you need to count the cost because that's part of the cost. How about your very self? Are you yours or are you his? Scripture says you're not your own. You were bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You were purchased. How could I be purchased? Because you sold yourself. Because that was the cost. Walk in the cost, understanding the cost. Now listen, you know, nobody's feeling exhorted right now. <laughs> nobody's feeling edified, but I promise you there is no anything that you give to Jesus that he doesn't replace in this life and in the life to come. Every single sacrifice that you do in his name is storing for yourself treasure in heaven. 
this life is, if it were cold enough, and some days you'd argue that it is in here, that you could see my breath. Hopefully, coldness is the only way you could see my breath. When you see that little vapor of breath, he says, that's, that's this life to eternity. It comes and it goes in a second of eternity. We should never trade now for what we have an opportunity to have then. How about your time? I debated whether to say this or not, and I'm, I'm speaking to nobody and I'm speaking to everybody because I don't know anybody's life to, to the degree that I could judge. And a matter of fact, a lot of times when the devil gets me to think about judgmental kind of things about the church and volunteering and things, he'll let me see little things where people are doing tons of stuff that I'm just not aware of for Jesus. So I'm not, I'm not speaking to anybody in particular, but I'm speaking to everybody as a church. We announced coming to Nancy's house and helping. We sent out emails. It was posted in Facebook. And, and the only people that came, and again, I'm not talking to anybody, but I am talking to everybody, are the people that were part of the group that organized it. Not one other person showed up. And I'm not punching you in the nose or poking you in the eye, but I want you to think about it because one of the things that we're very dear with is our time. But you've got to ask yourself, is it my time or is it his time? And then you've got to decide, and the Lord might not send you to Nancy's house, and he may not ask you to loaf a, loaf a bake of bread. <laughs> he might not ask you to preach in pig Latin either. But he might. And if he does, say yes. Because that's what you did. You signed up for that. That's what I did. He goes on in Luke chapter 14 and finishes this little course of scripture with this. Therefore, salt is good. But if the salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless for either the soil or the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. See, that, that salt is the application of our Christianity. It's, it's the Holy Spirit inside of us that manifests in the good deeds that God's prepared for us over or before the creation of the world. But if we lose our saltiness, there is no salt you can put into unsalty salt to make it salty again. We have to choose to stay salty. We have to choose to abide in Christ. Revelation um, chapter 2, verses 5 and 7, not 5 through 7. This is Jesus speaking to the Ephesian church. says this, Therefore remember from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you, and will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. I think he's speaking to us salty church that had lost its saltiness and he's calling them to repentance to go back to the deeds you remember when you first got saved i, I remember because I, I wasn't saved and i'm not saying that your life is any less than it ever was but i remember when my wife got saved it's like she got married to the freedom center for a little bit there if there was something to do for jesus she was doing it for jesus making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches just Everything, serving in the youth, just that's that first love. It's like you fall in love when, when you're first in love with a person and, and, and you just give all of yourself and all you want to do is please them. But then things get kind of like common. 
And you have to be careful that you don't let our walk with, or we don't let our walk with Jesus become common to where it doesn't look like our first love and that we have to get a rebuke from Jesus. He says, you've fallen. Your salt is not so salty anymore. Repent. Praise God for a spirit of repentance. Could you imagine? Because without a spirit of repentance, we wouldn't. And our saltiness would stay unsalty and our usefulness would be zero. Not even, I mean, we wouldn't even be good enough for the dung pile. Unsalty salt. In the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Jesus gives a command. He, get, he, he commissions, meaning he, he um, oh, what's the right word to use? Well, if you understand commission, he commissions. He commissions the church to be about his business. And he says this, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There's two things in here that he says. The first is to make disciples. But the second is to teach them to observe his commands. So we get a little... um, sense of what his commands are on a Sunday morning in a sermon. But his commands, his, his way of life, his how you look salty is, is in his word. And we need to be in his word because we've called him Lord. That's what we talked about on Thursday with the ladies. It's like we have, we have said to Jesus, you now own my life. You are Lord. You are master to my slave. How is it that you want your slave to operate? That's the great commission. Make disciples Teach them to observe what he's commanded. And then the life of Christianity, I mean, you know, you could boil it down because there's lots of words and instructions, but it boils down to being a disciple and making disciples. Being a disciple and making disciples. Part of being a disciple is making disciples, helping others to grow in their relationship with the Lord, serving one another in the Lord. So Luke 14 says, unless you, right, and then, this, you can't be my disciple. And the, and the Great Commission says to make disciples. So then if you ask yourself, does my walk as disciple look like the Luke 14 scriptures? When I have this kind of discussion with people, typically what I get are responses, not always, but oftentimes the responses I get sound like this. Well, I'm a work in progress. And if they're a little bit more into the word, they'll say, well, you know, sanctification is a process. The, the more you press, if you say, well, okay, you're a work in progress and sanctification is a process, how you do it in that process? If you didn't look so much like those Luke 14 scriptures a year ago, how do you look today? And when you start to press into that conversation a little bit, what you find out is their theology and their doctrine that is, I'm a work in progress and sanctification is a process, ceases to become so much theology and doctrine and starts to really become what it is, is a sad excuse. Because either I didn't know how my life was to be affected by this commitment that I made to Jesus, or I just choose not to and quit rubbing my face in it. I I don't like to be exposed to that. 
But that's what exhortation is. Exhortation is great when it's like, man, Patty, you are the most awesome teacher. You're the best bus driver. I want to just exhort you. I want to encourage you. I want to build you up and lift you up. And all those things are true. But if somebody's living in sin, if somebody is living in a less than the call, it's certainly less than the progress they should be at to this point. I, you know, whoever it is that wrote Hebrews said, by now you should be teachers, but I'm still having to serve you milk. The basic foundational things of the faith, if I ask you a question, you can't answer it. We all need to test ourselves against the scriptures, not against each other, because we never, ever know somebody else's story. And we don't want to get into a place of judging. But we want to test ourselves against the scriptures. Because the scriptures are, I, I should have gotten that, that verse, but it's like, it's absolutely excellent for, and in, you know, training and everything. <laughs> I'm having a little bit of a brain cramp on that one. But, but the scriptures are perfect for everything that we require to godliness and to walking with Jesus. The, the, the comment I have in here, I think I've really already said it, is, is why do we get to that way? And, and it's because most people make commitments to Christ without ever exploring or being told the implications on every area of their lives. So let me just close with, with this here. And this is at least that ought to be a little ex, you know, encouraging part for you. My perspective on Luke chapter 14 and the harsh, hard, strong words that Jesus uses is shifting. When he says, if you don't, whatever, you can't be my disciple. My impression was always, if you don't, I won't let you be my disciple. And I'm watching. I know he loves me, but he has a, a standard. And I can't be his disciple unless I meet the standard. The evolution of how I see that scripture is, is this. Imagine yourself... And you, you just have this passion to be a, like a world champion triathlete. Now, does everybody know what a triathlete is? It's like you run a marathon, 26 miles. You bike 100 miles, and you swim miles. I don't know how many miles. I can't even imagine. And you do it all at once, right? You have this passion to be a world-class triathlete. And there's this guy who is like, known as the best coach you could have. If you could work and be a disciple, so to speak, if you could sit under this coach, you have every opportunity that anybody could have to be the best triathlete in the world. So you come to an interview because this coach has lots and lots of people that want to be trained by him. And he says, are you willing to change your diet and eat only this way because your body needs this kind of fuel and this kind of fuel will destroy it. Are you willing to sacrifice this many hours a day, this many days a week for the next three years to get to that peak level of performance? Are you willing to suffer the pain and the injuries associated with training and training and training and training to the point where you want to cry because your muscles hurt so bad? Because if you're not, you can't be a world-class triathlete. And that's where I think Jesus has taken us with that scripture. Not, I won't let you, but the requirement is so, so big. And the call is so great that unless you make this level of commitment, at some point you'll stop being my disciple. You'll have fallen from your first love. You'll have walked away because you weren't prepared in your heart and in your mind 
to persevere and endure. And if you think of it that way, and you start to see all through, all through the New Testament, the places where it says, to the one who endures until the end, the one who perseveres until the end will be saved. And that's one of the reasons why I connect saved and disciple together, where some people might not. I don't know how somebody could be n- not in the kingdom because you connect disciple and kingdom, not in the kingdom yet be saved. Jesus is not their king, yet somehow they're saved, but they have a different king. Can't be that way. So the point, I think, of what Jesus is trying to teach us here is this, that unless we understand, unless we count the cost, and he presents it to us in like the most woe kind of way, ending with, unless you give up all your possessions, you can't be my disciple. He said earlier in, in the Sermon on the Mount that you can't serve two masters. You can't serve money or wealth, mammon, and God because you'll love one and you'll hate the other. You'll be devoted to one and you'll despise the other. Unless this is the commitment of your heart, you'll fail at being my disciple. I'd love to have you, but you just can't do it. So with that being said, I'd like for all of us to look at our lives and measure them against the scriptures. If, if you can't do that because you don't know the scriptures, read your Bible. It's in there. Read, read the red letter parts of the Gospels. Jesus doesn't mince words. But then read the, the, the letters, the epistles that speak to carrying one another's burdens and, and love and, and um, overcoming uh, evil with good and, and all those things. And, and as we start to apply them, and I'm not saying they're not applied in, in, in our lives to some extent or another, in my own life, I'm, I'm challenged right now with some of this really, really deeply in my own life. As we start to walk in those places, the glory and the joy and the relationship, remember First John said, when you walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, you have fellowship with one another, us and God having such intimate fellowship with one another. And again, the blood of his son Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So I'm asking you all to just take a look this week and see if your expectation of disciple is consistent with his description of disciple. And if it's not, ask him to help you. Ask each other to help you. Ask me. If you don't know the scriptures and you really moved, call me. I love to read the scriptures with people. And then next week, we'll start to explore the area of holiness and what that looks like in our lives as we're surrendered to Jesus. Amen? All right, smile for me. There you go. My racquetball partner, when I'm winning, he says, nothing I hate worse is than when you're serving and you turn around, I got to look into that toothy grin or toothless grin of yours. (laughs) So I'll give you guys a little toothless smile. Father, thank you for today. Oh, can I just tell you one other thing? It's, it's next week's scripture, but it was supposed to be this week's scripture. You're going to get it again next week. If the devil gets in your head, don't listen to him because there's a, um, gosh, I can't remember where it's at, but there's a course of scripture that, that talks about all these terrible characteristics like idolatry and all these different bad things. Maybe. And he says, I think it's one of the Timothys. And he talks about these people, and he says, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. 
I always thought that scripture meant the power to heal and, you know, these, these amazing miracle powers of God. I don't think so because contextually it's talking about all this bad stuff as denying. It's the person who said, I just can't do it. It's not possible. That's denying the power of God. So if, if the holy or if the devil tries to get in your head, remember that scripture because the power of God unto transformation is the greatest miracle in the kingdom. For every blind eye open, for every lame walk that was resurrected, for every dead person that came to life, the transformed life is the greatest miracle. And the power of God is absolutely capable to do it. All right. Well, on that note, Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for these people. Thank you for the wonderful anointing in this place. It was so awesome to be ministered to by Holy Spirit through Margie's voice and Mike's word and and through your scriptures, God. Help us to be salt and light in this world, never, ever losing our saltiness and to just rise up. We keep hearing that word, rise up to the fullness of the call that's on our lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.